We are, uh, have reached the sense of touch this morning in our sermon series entitled Sensible Faith. We're going through the fire or the senses. We did sight, hear, smell. Today we're at touch. Next Sunday, taste. One thing we haven't talked about, uh, and I think this is a good time for it to come out, is why the order of the senses? It's kind of like, why do we say A-E-I-O-U? There's reasons for those things. The order, and this is why I arranged them this way. I arranged the senses um, from, based on distance. The distance of the senses. So the sense of sight is our most passive sense that interacts with things, but, uh, but has no effect on them. When you look at an object, it's not the different for it. Uh, we don't take anything from an object when we observe it. It's a completely passive sense, and the object that's being looked at is, is none the worse for wear. The same is somewhat true with sound, except you might think that the object itself has to be giving of it, emanating in some way. Uh, but it can't, it can't broadcast it just to you, right? When something makes a sound, it just is to the whole world. But the closer and closer we get, particularly this morning and especially next Sunday with taste, there's an intimacy of the senses that begins to kind of come out. To touch something is to be in relationship with it. You can't touch an object and expect it to remain the same. It will be different. Unlike looking at it or listening to it, an object is, is forever changed when we touch it or when it touches us. And as we, 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 we kind of head towards the end of this sermon series, we're entering into these much more intimate, much more relational senses um, and this morning is the sense of touch. And so we're going to spend some time talking about how do we relate to God through the sense of touch and how does he relate to us. As a side note, last week uh, I was preparing for the sense of smell and during that week my dog rolled in a pile of death <laughs> and then got in the back of my car and um, I want to forget that ever happened. Well, this week I was preparing for the sense of touch, and my daughter superglued a plastic army helmet to her head. <laughs> so I would appreciate your prayers as I prepare for the sense of taste. Uh, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Men's breakfast there. That's when it'll strike, right? Okay, well, uh, on our, as our way of introduction towards uh, I'm going to paraphrase this morning a large section of scripture. So I'm going to be paraphrasing for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And I think it's important, but what I want to offer you is if you on your own time this week want to go home and read for yourselves the section I've paraphrased, I want to, I want to give them to you ahead of time. So if you write these down or if you care to, uh, this is where the paraphrase will come from. The paraphrase is going to come from 1 Samuel 2 through 6. 1 Samuel 2 through 6. A parallel account of 1 Samuel 2 through 6, or uh, of the, actually of our selection this morning, is 1 Chronicles 13, 15, and 16. That's very helpful in understanding this account. And then the paraphrase this morning has been informed by Numbers chapters 3 and 4. And Joshua 21. So that's 1 Samuel 2 through 6, 1 Chronicles 13, 15, and 16, 
Numbers 3 and 4, and Joshua 21. All of those are kind of coming together to build what we're about to talk about. And we'll start with the priesthood, because that's kind of where we ended last Sunday, the idea of the priesthood and the tabernacle. If you recall, last Sunday we talked about how holy the most holy place was. That inside the most holy place no one could ever really go. Only one priest, one day a year for a short time, could go in there. And even then he had to use great care and use great solemnity and reverence. But what makes it challenging with the tabernacle is you have this most holy place of the Lord where the most notable feature in it is the Ark of the Covenant of God where that is protected and guarded in the way that it's, it's approached. But the tabernacle at the same time has to be mobile. It was built to move. And so there's, there's a, it's quite a delicate situation how you move a most holy place and still keep a most holy attitude about it. You know, even you with your relics on your nightstand or whatever, when it comes time to move, you still put them in a box. So how do you do this? Well, the way the Lord did this is he took a people for himself. This is one of the reasons he did this. He took out of the 12 tribes of Israel, he took the Levites. He said, they're my tribe. They're no longer one of the 12. And he kind of created another 12. Uh, And with the Levites, he said, I have set these people aside for my labor on your behalf as they kind of act as priests and as a priestly tribe among the nations. And among those, the tribe of the Levites, there are three clans. The clan of Gershon, the clan of Koath, and the clan of Gerari, Marari. Excuse me. And those three clans were assigned duties when it came time to move the tabernacle. Pick up the tent poles or the, or the curtains or whatever, whatever it had. There was a lot of stuff to carry. And those three clans were in charge of carrying it. Now, there was the, the middle clan, the clan of Koath, They had a unique primal role in the movement of the tabernacle. And the reason for this is because in the tribe of Levi, in the clan of Koath, was the line of Aaron, the priest. So Aaron and all his sons were out of the clan of Koath. And only Aaron and his sons, all the way down, even to this day, have the right of calling themselves like a priest of the Most High God. All of the sacrificing that would occur in the temple or the tabernacle was, had to be done not simply by a Levite, not simply by a Kohathite, but by someone in Aaron's line, a descendant of Aaron. So all the other Levites, they had kind of peripheral duties to the care of the priestly work of the temple and the tabernacle, but Aaron's family was intimately involved. And he was a Kohathite, and so the Kohathites kind of gathered around him in responsibility, and their job was to move the most holy place. I'm going somewhere, I promise. And Numbers 3 and 4 tells the Kohathites how to do it. It says this, listen, when it comes time to move the camp, you have to move the most holy place and the Ark of the Covenant of God, but you cannot see it. Even in the moving of it, you can't see it. You can't even see it a little bit. It says, if you even see it for a moment, you're going to die. And it says, and you can't touch the Ark of the Covenant of God. You can't even barely touch it. If you touch the Ark of the Covenant of God, you're going to die. In fact, there's this, there's this prescription at the very end of this conversation to Aaron and Moses saying, you really need to watch over the Kohathites because they might all die out if you're not careful. And he goes, and then where will we be? It says, take care of them. Because if they see it, they'll die. If they touch it, they'll die. 
And so this, you're wondering, how do you move an ark if you can't see it, if you can't touch it? This is how Scripture says in Numbers 3, it says, when you approach the most holy place, you're going to stare at the curtain that's between you and the ark of the covenant of God. It says to the Kohathites, grab the curtain and bring it off its hooks. And This is the best sense I can make of it, at least. And it says, and walk it back so that you drape it over the ark of the covenant of God. So that the curtain is always between us and him. And then it says this, once you've draped the great veil over the Ark of the Covenant of God, and it says, now you need a blanket of sea lion skins. I don't know why, but you need one. Get a blanket of sea lion skins, cover the curtain with a blanket of sea lion skins, so that now there's this holy barrier between the curtain and the most holy Ark of the Covenant of God. And then you get a blue linen fabric, very fine fabric, and you cover that. And only then do you grab the large poles and push them through the ringlets of the ark. And even then, only the Kohathites can ever carry the ark of God. They're the only people who can carry it. They can't touch it. They can't see it. But they're the only people who can carry it. Anyone else? Death. That's the Kohathites. And that is their responsibility before the Lord. Now I'll start my paraphrase. You thought it was a paraphrase. Here we go. Towards the time of the end of the judges, uh, one of the final last priests of the era of the judges was Eli. Eli had two sons who served with him as priests. They were in the line of Aaron. And Eli's two sons were wicked, worthless boys. They were men. They were, just, they were less than worthless because they were priests and they were worthless, which made their impact really negative. <laughs> Well, during this time of the Hebrew people, by the way, the Hebrew people were failing at this point. There was just a vestige left of what God had intended for Israel. It's, the, it's at the weaning end of kind of the, the, the time of the judges. And the Hebrew people are at war with the Philistines. And so they meet on the field of battle to have a battle. And the Israelites get routed and they come home and they, they can't figure out why they lost. And they say, well, maybe the reason we lost is we didn't have the ark with us. They said, God, we have God in a box here. We could have brought God down to the battlefield, and then we would have been victorious. And so they say to Eli's sons, get God in the box and bring him with us. And Eli's sons, because they're wicked and impetuous, they say, that sounds like a great idea. So they get God, and they carry them down to the battlefield. And when the ark comes down to the battlefield, the, the Israelites just roar with momentum. So much so that the Philistines shake in their boots, because they've heard, and the murmurs in the Philistine camps are, We've heard this is the mighty God who circumvented Jericho and tore the walls down. They said, and this is the same God who destroyed the Egyptians. And they're nervous. And their commanders of the Philistines have to bolster them. Courage, men. Fight like a man. And they fight. And guess what happens? The Philistines rout the Israelites. They whip them. Not only do they whip him, but Eli's sons die on the field that very day, and the Ark of the Covenant of God is captured. Well, you can imagine the Philistine momentum at this point. And so they carry the Ark of the Covenant of God home to one of their primary capital cities. They had five of them, to Ashdod. And they take the Ark, and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And they place it beside Dagon. Why? Because Dagon is clearly more powerful than the God in the box. And they celebrate. And the next morning they come into the temple of Dagon 
and Dagon, the statue, has fallen on his face. And so they kind of pull him back up again. And the next day they come in, and the mighty Dagon has fallen again, only this time his head has split off and his hands have been knocked off. And this begins a chapter of Philistine life that they don't want to remember. The power of God that comes from the ark strikes the people of Ashdod with tumors and illness. It says it devastates the people. Those who did not die got tumors, is what the scripture says. It's so bad that the priests come together and they say, we have to get this ark out of here. Our life has been terrible since it showed up. So they brought it to one of the other five capital cities. They said, let's bring it to Gath. And they take it into Gath. And when it gets there, the same thing happens. The Philistines die and they got tumors and it's just this plague among the city. And so they take it out of Gath and they go to Ekron and the same thing happens there. It couldn't even make all five cities. It made three of the five and they said, we're done. Three of the five and they said, we're done. We're done with this ark, this mighty God. He, he dwarfs Dagon. And so this is what they said. They said, we're in trouble. They said, we need to give a guilt offering to the Lord. And so they made these gold rats and tumors, and they put them in a box. And they said, here, take the ark of the covenant of God and place it on a cart. And so they did that. And then they put this guilt offering right next to it. And then they hooked, they, they hitched to the cart two female cows, two heifers, who had not yet weaned their calves. Because this is the thought of the priests, is if God, if, if God is doing this to us, the God of the Hebrews, then he'll take the cart back. But if this is just sheer coincidence, there's no way these two cows are going to leave their calves. They'll walk, you know, we'll kind of wick them with the stick, they'll go 100 feet, they'll turn right around, they'll come back to their calves. So they put all of this on the ark, they, they tap them with the stick, nobody's riding it, they just send them off, and these two heifers leave Philistia, go up around the hill and through the woods, and they come to an Israelite town called Beth Shemesh. And the Philistine rulers look over the hill and watch, and they go, I guess it's God. And they go home. Now, we know where Beth Shemesh is to this day. In fact, it's being unearthed even now. You can go online and watch archaeologists unearth it. This is an interesting thing about the town of Beth Shemesh. It's not far from Philistia. But what's really interesting about it is, as they've been uncovering the archaeological data, the remains of the animals that they found, you know, like the, the pile where you throw your food, the food dump, what they found is that food dump is completely kosher. It's completely kosher. Which you're saying, well, I, you're thinking, duh, it's Jewish. But you've got to realize, just like you're not all that Christian sometimes, Jews might weren't all that Jewish sometimes. And so it actually, to an archaeologist, is quite interesting that there aren't any unclean animals in there. You'd think maybe there were some foreigners that lived in the city. That Nothing. It's all kosher. And this is the reason. This is the reason why. Remember I told you that the Lord had pulled the Levites out for himself? Well, when he did that, they no longer had land assigned to them. The 12 tribes got all these different land, land plots. This is where Judah is. This is where Gad and Manasseh and Ephraim. That, those were the, where the tribes got. The Levites, however, had no land because they were no longer a tribe of the people. 
And so what the Lord said to the Levites is, instead of giving you land, I will disperse you among my tribes, and I will sign unto you towns within the tribes, and they will be your towns, and the surrounding tribe will minister to you and bring you what you need. You will minister to them, and they will support you. And Beth Shemesh was one of these towns. It was a town of the Levites. Do you have any guesses as to what clan it belonged to? Koath. So the Ark of the Covenant of God doesn't simply get on a cart with two heifers that have not yet weaned and go to Israel. It goes to Israel to the town of the people assigned to care and protect and treat the Ark with reverence. Well, when it gets there, the farmers in the field see it and the alarm goes up and they immediately start to rejoice Because the Ark of the Covenant of God has come home to them. And so they sound the alarm and they bring the cart with the heifers up onto a high hill in Beth Shemesh and they destroy the the cart. They break it up and they light a fire. And then they cut the heifers and they sacrifice the heifers as a burnt offering to the Lord. And there's this big celebration before the Lord because He's returned among the people. Which is what we would expect. But something else happens. Some of the Kohathite men were curious about the ark. Because you have to think about it. They, they would likely have never seen the ark in their entire life. From the moment the ark was made and placed into the tabernacle at the consecration of the tabernacle, that was the last time it was ever seen except by one priest a year for one day for just a moment. You could be a child growing up during the 40-year journey in the wilderness and you would have never seen the ark. You would have seen poles and blue. I never imagined that, that walking around Jericho was a blue shrouded box. And now it's sitting here in its glory, just sitting here. And so some of these guys, they open it up. Now remember, Kohathites guard it. Don't look at it and don't even think about touching it or you'll die. And here it is in a Kohathite town and they go... And they look in, and God strikes them dead. It's not sure from Scripture whether it's 70 men or 50,000 in 70 men. It's not quite sure. I think it's the big one. Well, the city reels. They just stumble back that God would strike them in such a way. So much so that the Kohathites town assigned to care for the Ark of the Covenant of God says, get it out of here. We can't even deal with this. And so they take the Ark, and guess where they take it? To a farmer's house at Benadab, and they leave it in his lawn, and they leave. And they give him one priest to guard it. I see it like a tractor in the field where the guy weed whacks around it every fourth. <laughs> That's the Ark. That's God. And God sits there in this farmer's yard... For the entire reign of King Saul, King Saul never even comes to it, never even references it. It sits there until King David. And David says, why in the world is God at Abinadab's? Let's get him here so that we can worship before him in spirit and in truth. And this brings us to 2 Samuel. Chapter 6.
Would you please turn there with me? 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. If you're using a Bible in the seat back, it's page 214. Second Samuel 6, 1 through 11. All right, here we go. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Balah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their mights before the Lord, with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. What did Uzzah do? We'll just stop there this morning. What did Uzzah do? Is it so bad? Is what Uzzah did so bad? He was helping the Lord out. The Lord was going to fall off an ox cart. And Uzzah... Helped him. You see what's happening? The Lord was about to fall out of an ox cart. It wasn't like Uzzah was lounging on him. They were trying to bring the cart to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they hit a bump, and it almost fell out, but Uzzah stopped it from falling out. What's wrong with that? Well, there's a big thing wrong with the whole ordeal. We'll start small and we'll get bigger. Probably a good starting point is this, to remind ourselves that God does not need our help. God doesn't need Uzzah's help. He does not need Uzzah's helping hand. Just think a second. Think of the whole paraphrase. The Israelites, in an effort to win a battle on their own imagination, grab the Ark of the Covenant of God and rush into battle. They get annihilated. The Ark ends up in the Temple of Dagon. Did they go, did they go rescue the Ark from there? Is that how the Ark got back? Did the Israelites form a search party or special ops raid into the temple of Dagon? God walked out of Philistia on his own two feet. And here we have a guy keeping him from falling off an ox cart. God inflicted more harm and injury to the Philistines through his little five-city tour than the Israelites could with their own swords and spears. And God comes out of the Philistine land with a guilt offering. 
That is the, that's the God we worship. Not this God in, an, in a box on an ox cart that's going to fall over. This is, this is a delicate attitude that's gone awry here. This idea that God needs our help. That if we're not there to walk right beside him, he might fall off his, his cart. Sometimes, sometimes I think that we have this attitude of, if the church can just kind of get together and get it right, and if we can give a good push, we usually pick some, some important year, like 20, 2000 or 2010, so the next one will be 2020. That in 2020, we can make sure that everybody in the world is heard, and that everybody has received the message, and that this is... I, I, I commend fervent labor before the Lord, but God does not need our help. What's wrong with the kingdom is not the king. Here's another way that we do this. Sometimes we think, and this happens, certainly happens at the level of church, but it happens in the home too. You wonder, why is God not answering your prayer? And you start to think, maybe it's something you've done. Like you haven't prayed just right. Or you've, there's something in the way. Or if you only did this. Or if you spend a little more time with your wife. Or you just got to get something just quite right. And, ah, I'm not doing my morning devotions well enough. Or ah, I did this wrong. Or I did this wrong. Do you think if your heart's right that God is going to not answer on a technicality? It's this attitude of we got to get it just right. What psalm in scripture has God crying out for man for help? Is there one? Is there a psalm that says, I, I cry out from the abyss, O man, come help me. Your strong, right, mighty arm, come save me from my ox cart. God does not need our help. I once had a seminary class, and in it we were, it was a, one about like missiology, about how to reach the world for the lost. And there was a lot of optimism in the class because it was young people like myself, and we're optimistic about the future. And, and that was good. I I'm I'm, think that's great. And in this class, this fellow who's, it turns out he's a friend of mine, so I'll protect his name. But he says, well, reaching the world, we're, we're almost, you know, we're going to see Christ in our time because of the internet. The internet. And I remember thinking, what? Like, the internet that I know of is not propagating the name of Christ. <laughs> Do you think the Lord's been waiting around for 3,000 years for a domain name? <laughs> this, is, this is the issue. God does not need our help. God isn't waiting on some new methodology or new vision or new, new strategy or some new fancy idea. And I feel this. Because people like me rack our brains for a new idea or new methodology. God doesn't need us. God allows us in. The king could do all of this himself. It's his gift to you to be righteous servants. It should be an act of abundant joy that he allows you the position of worthy servant. He doesn't need us. And he's not going to fall off a cart if we're not around. I think this attitude comes from the fact that we do not recognize who our God is. And this is the big idea. This is what's wrong in 2 Samuel. They think they have God in a box. That's what they think. They think this is God, but they think he's God in a box. 
this is a, you know, there's some powerful force in this box. They do not recognize the God that's there. It, it, just because God is a three-letter word, sometimes people have it a three-letter idea. This is God. This is the same God that when Moses stood on the mountain, he said, Moses, take your sandals off because the ground on which you stand is holy. This is the same God that was that burning bush of consuming fire yet did not consume. This is the same God that when the people came back to that same mountain, he said, I'm going to talk to Moses. You tell them not to even put a foot on the mountain or they must die. I am so holy and so powerful that I will dwell at the top of the mountain and my holiness will extend to the base. He said, put a rope around it. He said, if a goat crosses it, stone the goat because it has violated my holiness. This is that God. That same God who with smoke and fire and thunder and wind humbled the Israelites at the base of that mountain in such a way that they said, woe is us, we are undone. What have we gotten ourselves into to be beneath this mighty God? This is that same God. He's just now in a box. And that's what, that's what you feel like. You, when you see this idea of this God in a box, now he starts to become manageable by us. He's a box that we can put in a closet when they come over. Or he's a box that we can put in the basement behind the Christmas ornaments and the Easter ornaments that we pull out. Or he's a box that in your dorm room, when you need an A on a test, you can open it up and see if there's an A in there. That's what we've done. We do not recognize the God we worship. The best possible form of evangelism is recognizing God for who he is. We're trying to figure out this new way to have this new phrase that will capture this person. If we become a people of God who recognize him for who he really is, that will stand out, I promise you. If you act like you worship a big God, people will wonder what's going on. Humble reverence before an almighty God is the best form of evangelism. Not tambourines and cymbals. Not big gatherings and to do. Not a fancy cart with fancy bulls and spinners on the wheels. Just recognizing who he is is the worship. Now, we say to ourselves, well, that's what we're here for. We're here this morning to recognize who he is. That's what we're doing. But look at the story. Where is Uzzah when this happens? He is in the middle of a 30,000-man worship service when this happens. Do you see this? There's 30,000 people. It's scripture says they are worshiping with all of their might. Are we doing that? Are we doing that right now? Some of our might? Some of us might be worshiping? Right? Uzzah is in the middle of this powerful moment. He keeps God from falling off a cart and he's dead for the irreverent act, Scripture says. That tells me that this sin will sneak in even into worship. Maybe missing God for methodology, being fearful to pray to Him because you don't think He's going to listen. 
You know, some people think, ah, oh, why would you listen to my prayer? That's because they worship a small God. We do not worship a God in the box. And we need to recognize who he is. Would you turn? I want to I want to get the fullness of this idea out. Would you turn with me to, to Luke chapter 8? Because it's right for some of you are probably struggling in some ways with the idea of having this reverent God but still feeling like you're at some great distance or like how can you even approach that kind of God? How do we get to that kind of God? If we can't touch him or see him ever, how do we get there? How do we, how do we worship that? I think Luke 8 answers this. 7.19, I think, in your Bibles. I'm going to pick up in verse 40 to 48. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, now listen, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they are all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And she came up behind him, and she touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. she didn't die. 2 Samuel, Uzzah tries to keep God from falling off an ox cart. He's dead. Here, this woman grabs onto him and she's healed. She gets life and Uzzah gets death. How is that? She's not a Kohathite. She didn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. First of all, is he God? Yes. He's every bit as God as the Ark of the Covenant of God. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant of God is not God. God dwells in the empty space between the cherubim. That is the mounting piece for the presence of God. Don't even touch that. This is the manifestation of God in human form. The fullness of deity in human form. He touches the box and he's struck dead. She reaches out and grabs for him and she's instantly healed. How does that happen? She's not even clean. 
And this isn't the only time it's like this for Christ. If you read the Gospels, you will find that Jesus Christ touches and is touched all the time. All the time. He touches and is touched. And he touches when you think you would least want to touch and is touched all the time. The blind man, what does he do? He reaches out, he spits, he rubs, he puts his hands on the blind man and he sees the leper. Jesus could have healed the leper with a word. In fact, one time, ten lepers come to Christ. And what does Jesus say? He says, be healed. Go to the temple, offer sacrifice. And they're healed. But one leper comes to him, never been touched. He's unclean, he's filthy. And Jesus says, be healed. Puts his hands on him. This dead girl in the account, the 12-year-old dead girl, he walks in, he takes her by the hand and says, come on, get up. And she's healed. The chapter before this in Luke, the harlots comes in at a dinner party and begins with tears to mop his feet and clean them with perfume. And what does he say? Does he say, what an irreverent act. Somebody just touched God. No, he says, this is a beautiful thing that's being done for me. Children gather around Christ and he says, let them come to me. And he lays his hands on them and he blesses them. Everywhere you go, Jesus is blessing them. When the apostles don't have time writing in the Gospels, all of what he did, they usually sum it up like this. All of the sick came to him and he laid his hands on them and they were healed. He's touching them and he's being touched. Thomas, Thomas is there. Jesus walks in and says, Thomas, let me see your hand. Do you feel my wounded side? How do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this Second Samuel God who strikes people down for barely touching something to Jesus who reaches out and grabs and embraces filth? I think this is the measure of grace. That's it. It's a question I know the answer to, but I continue to ask the question. You want to know what the measure of grace is that has invited you into the kingdom? This is it. The God who cannot be seen, the God who cannot be touched even for a moment, has made himself human and has come and has reached out and grabbed you. That is grace. This is the same God. Scripture is not inconsistent. This didn't evolve. Overnight, Jesus is incarnated. He enters into history, and he begins to touch that which no one would touch, and he begins to receive that which no one would receive, and he is holy as holy can be. Right now, right now as we speak, there are angels who can say nothing but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we we can touch him. God says, cover up the Ark of the Covenant of God with a curtain and sealskin and a blanket, but crucify my son naked on a cross. This is the measure of grace. That he who was this inapproachable mountain has become our salvation. This is, what, this is the way that the writer of Hebrews tries to reconcile this idea. He says this, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. For if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. 
the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He says, you haven't come to that when you've come to Christ. He says this, but you have come to Mount Zion, to a heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, our mediator of a new covenant and to a sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's who we've come to. The measure of grace is a God who doesn't need help and who cannot be seen because he is so holy, made himself visible and real for us. To touch something is to be in relationship with it. Some of you... You can see God from a distance. You see him, you see the truth, you know the truth, or you can hear the truth. You read the truth and you know it to be true and you think you're okay. I'm saying if you're not in relationship with God, that does not count. To know, to see, to hear is passive. To touch is what we're called to do as the church. 